0: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Thanks very, very much for joining me today, and I am really excited about the book that you'll be hearing about in a couple of moments. I just talked with Dorothy Ko about her new book, The Social Life of Inkstones, Artisans and Scholars in Early Qing China. This came out with the University of Washington Press in a really beautiful edition in 2017. So Sometimes when I'm reading books and preparing for the podcast, I have a really clear sense of, oh, this is book prize territory, and this is definitely the case for this book. I mean, if, if I had prizes to give out um, for the podcast, this would definitely get one. It is a masterful, expertly researched, and beautifully written account of inkstones, their production, um, their circulation, their materiality in the early Qing. Now, if you are a historian of China, of any period, you should read this book. And if you are a historian who's interested in objects or material culture, anywhere in any period, you should read this book. One of the reasons that's the case is that regardless of the fact that it is covering a totally fascinating and really, really important kind of object in the context of Chinese history, but also um, potentially beyond. But the methodology that Dorothy uses here in her analysis is really a model for what it can look like to give equal attentiveness and attention to not just texts or documents as texts, but also to objects as text and materials that can be read with the eyes, with the hands. And she puts a lot of emphasis on the significance and importance of, as you'll hear in the conversation to come, working with objects oneself and potentially even learning how to produce the objects that you are researching the production of as a way of telling a story about them. And so it's an extensive interview. I will leave you to it, but I'll just say, um, really, really, I recommend getting your hands on a copy of the book. And not just for all of the reasons that I just mentioned, but also because the images um, in the book are really important and really striking. It is full of images that are really an integral part of the story that Dorothy's telling um, in a really, really obvious way. So do get your hands on a copy of the book. Um, I hope you do that soon. And I hope you have a chance um, not just to read it, but also to enjoy what comes next. Um, This was a particularly inspiring conversation for me, and I hope you enjoy it similarly. Thanks very, very much for listening and for your support of the channel. I'm here today to talk with Dorothy Ko about her new book, The Social Life of Inkstones. Welcome to the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, Dorothy. Thank you for writing not only a really engaging and powerful book, but also a beautiful book and a book that I'm really excited to talk about with you today. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Carla. So great to be here.
0: So let's start with the big traditional opening question.
1: How did you
0: come, Dorothy, to work on China and why Qing China specifically, at least in the context of the work we're talking about today?
1: That definitely wasn't what I was thinking of uh, when I went to college. But um, I majored in international relations because I was so so intrigued by the contemporary world, not being allowed to study a whole lot of it, actually. I grew up as a colonial subject of uh, Great Britain in Hong Kong, so there were no civic lessons, there were no politics lessons. But as I got um, older into my 20s, I realized I was really, really, really missing something. Um, even though ethnically I was Chinese, but we were really not allowed to study Chinese history as I grew up. So I just gravitated to history, China, in graduate school. And then I realized that I don't really enjoy studying the modern period because it's too close, it's too messy. And I want to let my imagination run wild talking to dead people. So I, I moved further and further back in time and became a historian, basically of the 17th century.
0: So how how did you come to focus on inkstones as the subject of your research for this book and as the subject for a book-length object specifically?
1: Um, I wasn't so set on inkstones in the beginning. I wanted to write a book that uh, combined both my interest in gender and women and material culture. Uh, It was a difficult emotional period in my life, and I I was really desperately looking for a research topic that is not so cut and dry, that is not so cerebral, intellectually kind of concentrated, because I, I didn't want to live in my head anymore. So I was trying desperately to get to my own body and my body as a historian. So I knew I wanted to work on material culture. And it just so so I was basically surveying the landscape looking for women in Chinese history who made anything with their hands, who were, we might call, you know, artisans, uh, craftspeople. And um, I found that one of the famous uh, makers of inkstones was a woman in the 18th century. So I was hooked.
0: Mm-hmm. And this is yeah. actually one of the amazing things about the book is it really, the materiality, the embodiedness, the physicality of what you are talking about really does come through in the mm. pages. And we'll talk about that, Great. Um, I think Great. actually in a few moments. So mm. as as the introduction to the book tells us, the ink—and this is in the words of the book—the ink grinding stone is the protagonist of this book. Now, you cite a moment early on from Mencius, and this is um, this is the moment that you cite: "Those who labor with their brains govern others; those who labor with their brawn are governed by others." Now, this book is Mm. going to trouble the hierarchy of head over hands and the propensity Mm. um, related to that to denigrate craftsmen in Chinese history. So I think this is a good um, place to start, Dorothy. Can you talk Mm. um, as a way of bringing us into the project a little bit about that aim of the book um, to kind of trouble this hierarchy of head over hands in a way, actually, that um, evokes some of what you've just said about your own process of coming to this book?
1: Mm. It's interesting that when I started um, to think about material culture and started to um, look for a viable book project or with with just the right uh, storyline and so on, I wasn't really thinking about troubling this hierarchy of mind over body or head over hand. Um, I think that in part because I was myself so deeply embedded and embedded in that hierarchy, being trained as a scholar. And I think I'm pretty kind of cerebral myself. Um, So I was I was unaware that actually I was using a, a value system and using an approach, a method that actually would never allow me to see the world from the artisan's eyes because I keep asking the objects, for example, or the material culture to speak. Speak their own story. You know, why are you talking yet? Why aren't you talking yet? I was, you know, flustered. And then I realized even using this linguistic metaphor is perhaps, um, not so good because it is kind of shoehorning you know the objects and the artisans into our or my worldview my method as a scholar why should they speak our language maybe they are just there talking i just couldn't hear it because i haven't learned that foreign language
0: mm-hmm. That's fabulous. And yeah. That actually, I think, really nicely informs one of the methodological commitments that comes out of the book that you also talk about here in the introduction. So, in the intro, you say, mm-hmm. This is a quote from the book for listeners I refrain mm-hmm. from writing about things I have not tried my hands in fabricating, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Nor do I discourse at length about specific objects that I have not examined in person. So, there's yeah. a really, that's a really Strong and really powerful, I think, not just statement but also position um, in terms of your own methodology going into this. So, can you speak a little bit about that commitment, Dorothy?
1: yeah I laughed because it cost me dearly. I really wanted to to write about women weavers because they they were powerful, they populated Chinese history they were economically important to their uh, families, and uh, women traditionally spun and wove um, It was kind of their métier I really wanted to write a book to honor that. But I just couldn't teach myself how to weave. It was so difficult. My mind, uh, my fingers always tied up in knots, even though people teach me to, to use it, you know, to cut strips of paper. Uh, I tried my hand in spinning and I was going backwards and I just couldn't do it. So I, I decided that, uh, I would I would not be able to write a book on weavers and and spinners. So I ended up writing about embroidery. Um, There was a very interesting woman embroiderer who modernized uh, Chinese traditional Suzhou style embroidery to make the the embroidered, paintings a lot more like photography, a lot more lifelike, a lot more painterly in the Western sense. So while researching um, this woman embroiderer, I realized that if I hadn't talked to the embroiderers of Suzhou, and if I hadn't asked them to teach me how to do what they do I would not be able to understand uh what I was looking at, mm-hmm. so I realized that whatever i I try to write about there is no gainsaying that uh, I'm not a journeyman my my output the the end result of my research is still a book, not an inkstone or not an embroidered uh, painting. But I, I realized that if I if I don't know exactly how to make that Thing, then I would be missing out a lot, and I would go back to the scholar's world, uh, and the scholar's world view and and approach and values and method, and try to translate um, the material things into very abstract intellectual uh, rubrics or ideas or frameworks that the scholars like to bash around. So it was just. Um, a little challenge for myself. I didn't know if I could do it, but thankfully, um, carving an inkstone. It's not that hard. Uh, the challenge is to carve a, a smooth, beautiful, and useful one. But just to hack at the stone, I did it, and I could do it.
0: You know? <laughs> do you ever do that with students? Like when you're teaching, do you ever... hacking them? Yeah. Do you ever? Oh, that <laughs> hacking your students. Yes. And that's another pedagogical kind of methodological. Kind. Yeah. <laughs> but in, in terms of how you teach, do you ever integrate this sort of hands-on experience into how you teach Qing history? Your history of material culture,
1: absolutely. Um, in some of my seminars, I actually encourage them to produce. Um, no for their capstone experience project uh not a research paper but a research object that they make themselves so in the past i've had a theater major um who made a costume oh. uh, And then uh, I couldn't grade the costume. So I asked her to write a journal uh, detailing her material experiences of uh, making that costume. I've also had various students in my foot binding seminar uh, taking on the challenge. I mean, they didn't know that it was a challenge uh, taking on the challenge of making a shoe entirely by hand they regretted it (laughs) wildly as soon as they started because they realized it was so hard Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) this is great i mean this is um Yeah, we could talk about this, I think, for another couple of hours. I love that. And I think it's a really great idea um, as a teacher, right, to integrate this into your pedagogy. Now, getting back to the introduction, as the intro also tells us, um, and this is again in the words of the book, we may speak of the early Qing as a material Empire, And this leads really nicely into the first chapter. Chapter one is set, um, as all the other chapters are, in a particular place. And the particular place this is set is the imperial workshops in the Forbidden City. Now, you tell us here early in the chapter, the imperial workshop system is emblematic of a new Qing ruling style that can only be called materialist. So, Dorothy, can you say a little bit about that for you? What's important for us to know about the particular materialist orientation of the ruling style of the early Qing?
1: Mm, uh, yeah, it's a great question. Um, we tend to think of the Chinese empire as the empire of, you know, the mandarins in the silk robes and long fingernails, chanting poetry and writing examination essays and so on. I think that um, that's only at best half of the picture. And in fact, if we get down to looking at what Chinese emperors spent their time doing on a day-to-day basis. Uh, And this is true not just of the Qing emperors but of the Ming emperors, Song emperors uh, who were particularly famous for their paintings, calligraphy and cultural accomplishments. We realized that actually they spent a great deal of their time supervising the making of things. And they not only do they care about how the dragon ropes look like, they also care about how it was made, the material process, the technology of it, where the silk was sourced, or in the case of ceramics, um, what kind of pigment would be used on the glazing and so on, so from that sense uh, uh from that perspective, all Chinese emperors were materialistic uh um, to a certain extent. But the Qing emperors, especially the early Qing emperors, were particularly uh, materialistic in the sense that they were Manchus. They are uh, even as recently as, say, a hundred years before they uh, vanquished the Ming uh, dynasty. They were basically... Uh, hunters and gatherers. They were nomads. I don't mean that they were not sophisticated, but they really had never made paper or uh, make silk or ceramics. So in some sense, they were the first to admit that they needed to learn. And they realized that a, a, a good uh, administrator needed to know how to make these things and they said about uh really putting their minds to it and they're really incredibly quick learners. They learn from the Jesuits, they learn from uh Chinese artisans and, you know, scientists recruited from all over the empire because they take it Seriously, they know that it is important for them uh, to know how to make everything.
0: And in fact, um, part of the work that this chapter does is take us into the particular um, preferred styles and the particular activities of individual emperors. So we, for example, learn about um, Yongzheng and the way that he trusted, um, for example, the ability and the discretion of particular craftsmen. And we also learn about his mm. predilection for the kinds of containers that mm. came in. But mm. we, we don't just learn about um, the emperors here. We also learn about about bond servants and their importance to what was going on. So um, for you, Dorothy, what's important for us to know about bond servants in this
1: context? Who
0: are they and why are they such a big deal for this story?
1: Bond servants were really cool people uh they 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 came into chinese history you know as slaves of the manchu uh, households but um those who happened to be slaves or indentured servants of the princely households or of especially of the imperial households they Men, uh, became very, very privileged people because they were trusted lieutenants of the emperors or of the princes. So they were really interesting historical newcomers, a new cast of characters in Chinese history in that they were trained as scholars too. Yes, they studied books and they some of them even took the uh, civil service examination like the Chinese scholars. But at the same time, they were also highly skilled technocrats in the sense that um, they were trained in specific uh, statecraft um, skills such as hydraulics or engineering or uh making all kinds of cannons and weaponry and so on. So they they embodied both the kind of civil side of masculinity, but also the so-called uh, technical or militant side of masculinity. So they are really capable and really powerful uh, cast of new actors.
0: Great, And the chapter, I, I won't ask you to talk about this in detail um, just entirely in the interest of time, but I'll mention for listeners who are particularly interested in this part of the story, the chapter introduces us to some specific bond servants who are particularly um, important or interesting. And one of them, uh, Liu Yuan, is responsible mm-hmm. for the development of a particular style. Um, and you bring us into, and I just want to mention this, this is on page 26, because it's one of my favorite mm-hmm. moments of the book, you bring us into his um, kind of interest in and making of dragons on inkstones in a way Mm. that just brings the object and its kind of haptic qualities and its tactility to life in a really, really beautiful way. So Mm. this is to say, like, even though we're talking right now about people and kind of institutions, the objects are really front and center and your encounter with these objects as texts and as kind of uh, documents you can read with your hands and your eyes, right? Um, This comes Mm. out in every single chapter. And this is a particular moment where that does for me on twenty six. The Imperial workshops, though, are not the only place that we are introduced to. And in the second chapter, we move from there to quarries. And specifically, we move to the Duan quarries in Guangdong. So, Dorothy, for listeners who have no idea um, why a quarry and a Duan quarry specifically would be important, can you introduce the, the kind of the nature of the place and why it's significant for the story that you're telling?
1: um don quarry uh is really, really far from you know the heartland or the capital in the north it's in the southern tip of the empire but um there, because of a, a special geological formation, um, they produce just the right kind of stone uh, for the use of grinding ink. Um, it has just the right, uh, hardness and consistency so that it doesn't hurt the brush, but it also uh, is harder than the ink stick. Uh, so that you can easily make ink. So it's hard to believe that for over a thousand years, Chinese writers and painters believe that um, the best ink stones has to be made from a drawn stone. Uh, no other stone in the empire could uh, remotely match up to it. I, I actually think that there must be have been a lot of propaganda made by the Don people um, because there are uh, also all kinds of other stones elsewhere in China to me that are, are of a comparable geological formation. But nonetheless, um, it's kind of interesting and ironic that such a far away quarry became the main supplier of all of the uh, desirable uh raw material, raw stones, for making the most high-end and the most sought-after inkstones.
0: Great. Now, here in this chapter, we meet and we learn about the significance of stone cutters to this study. Mm-hmm. And so among the various kind of aspects of their craft that you bring us into is the practice of making their own tools. And so we learn about how mm-hmm. they actually make their own tools for their practice. Mm-hmm. But you also Mm. talk about the relationship of what they're doing to literacy, right?
1: Mm. Um, Mm.
0: Even though most stone workers may not have formally learned to read and write, you talk Mm. about the relationship between what they're doing in their craft to kind of literate figures, um, words and the values of literate culture that really did permeate Mm. their lives and work. So can you talk about literacy with respect to stone cutters um, in this Mm. context?
1: mm yeah i this is a a revelation uh, to me when I went to the Duan villages and talked to them about their daily life, um, because these stonecutters are still doing the same thing. And very often there are families that has been, have been doing uh, the same thing for, say, three or four hundred years. And it's there that I realized that some of them are literate and some of them are not. And those who are not literate are not any stupider than those who are literate. It simply means that uh, given their specialization in the trade, there is no need for them to learn how to read and write. Um, But uh, making their own tools, uh, learning how to quench the steel of the head of the chisel are more important skills to them. So I think that as scholars, very often we tend to privilege literacy, but we have to ask actually, uh, what does literacy do? There are certain knowledge that cannot be transmitted by books. So uh, literacy is not everything. Great.
0: Now, that kind of knowledge that can't necessarily be transmitted through books is also really important in this chapter in other ways. And we move Mm. not just, um, or as we move later in the chapter, we move to appreciate not just the work that hands do, but also the work that eyes do. So you talk Mm. quite a bit about... Uh, the expert knowledge of prospecting and of quarrying, Mm. um, and in several cases, a really special quality of the eyes, right? For example, the ability to penetrate Mm. rocks with the eyes, um, Mm. uh, at least... uh, as it 's written about or understood, um, but also perhaps practice becomes really important now, uh, special mm. abilities to penetrate the rock with one 's eyes also come up, and, and the significance of eyes also come up insofar as eyewitness and claims to eyewitness become mm. really important to knowledge of inkstones in the context mm. of shaping what you locate here as an emerging identity of the scholarly elite man in the 10th to 11th centuries. So mm. this is really important for, and really interesting for all kinds of reasons, right? There's a lot um, going on mm, here that we mm. can talk about. Um, but I wonder if you could say a little bit about what you think is most interesting and important about eyewitness um, insofar as we can see kind of maps of Duan quarries, right? And the kind mm. of X-ray penetration of the mm, um, mm. Um, coming up and the visual culture of what you show us here.
1: Yeah, I think that uh um eyesight is truly really important to uh a stonecutter, especially a, a miner or a prospector, uh even though as scholars we need eyes to stay at the screen. Um but to us eyes means eyes. But to a prospector, to a stone cutter, actually uh Eyesight means a lot of other sensory faculties as well, including smell, including uh, tactility, as you finger the rocks, including even strong legs. Uh, you have to hike through pretty stiff Uh, uh, slopes um, littered with very sharp waste rocks in order to find the source of the of the quarry so um I think that eyesight is a is a shorthand in that case for them for the whole body a full body sensorium, the engagement of eyes hands uh legs uh nose um it's no longer uh we can no longer separate all of these different uh um capabilities.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. I, I I totally appreciate that. And I think that's really, really important. And thanks for emphasizing that for us. Now, as we move out of the quarries um, and into the inkstone carving workshops in Sujo, as we move to the next chapter... We mm-hmm. are introduced to a really, really central figure in this study. This is mm. Gu, uh, Gu She flourished 1700 mm. to 1722 for listeners interested in her dates. And she was one of mm. the most accomplished inkstone makers of her day. And she, and she, right? We're talking about a woman and this is actually becomes really,
1: important, yeah.
0: especially, right? Thinking back to, um, what you were talking about in terms of what brought you to this project. So, yeah. It becomes really clear from the very first pages of this chapter that she's really interesting, but also that learning about her and her life was not at all an easy process. So, mm. Dorothy, um, can you say a little bit about what do we need to know about Gu as a person, right? Um, what do we need to know mm. about her life um, as we move forward to appreciate her craft? And can you talk about the process of actually getting to the point where you did know something Thing about her biography? Mm, um, I think
1: that um, it, 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 the reason why, I mean, it's, it's a big irony that she was supposed to be the most famous inkstone maker of her days, and yet we know so little about her. And I think that this is uh, very, very symptomatic of the, the lack of uh, visibility that. The artisans uh, suffered from, even the most famous ones. But what we do know about her is that um, she was just a regular housewife, a wife, uh, probably uh, taught embroidery while she was a girl uh, in order to help out with the household uh, livelihood. And then uh, uh, she married into a... Uh, a household that has at least two generations of uh, aimstone makers, uh, unfortunately, her husband suddenly died in his prime, and then her father in law had to had no choice because they actually had no children, so her father in law had to teach her all his skills all his craft in order for her to continue the household mental and um she adopted a nephew to be her adopted son and taught it to him and so on so she learned her skills from men she taught it to men and she basically thrived in a profession dominated by men i think that she was the only inkstone maker in chinese history i can find who was a woman
0: mm-hmm. So you talk here in this chapter, kind of methodologically about the lack of overlap between the textual and visual archives for understanding her and her work. And since that's actually a really, I think, interesting methodological point, can you say Mm. a little bit about um, kind of the attempts to and challenges of reconciling these material and textual sources to understand her and her practice?
1: Yeah I think that is a. It, I, it took me so long to write this book in it because I was really really stumped by the fact that I could find a little bit of textual uh, um records on her by her male patrons people who have direct interaction with her um and yet and they wrote about uh commissioning instruments from her but um, there is no way that I could match up these, uh, um, like, twelve, thirteen stones, depending on how you count, with the ink stones extant in museums and private collections today that bear her signature. Um, so I ended up uh, not being able to authenticate any stone. Uh, to be uh, surely made by her. But I I ended up using a theoretical uh, approach there reluctantly to make a larger argument that Uh, even though there are so many forgeries that bore um, that bear her signature but uh, that in itself tells us something about how uh, her buyers and collectors who no longer knew her personally and what kind of desires, what kind of taste that they must have harbored. Great,
0: And this actually really nicely comes up in the next chapter too and And we won't, so I'll go back a little bit in a moment, but in that Mm. chapter also, um, chapter four, you talk about your experience with some of these material objects that even though you couldn't necessarily definitively authenticate them, right, as her work, Mm -hmm. there Mm -hmm. were tropes, there were aspects of workmanship Mm. that might have lent one, right, to guess mm. that, like, if it mm. was to shove, this may have probably been her work. So mm. can you talk a little bit about that process of working with these objects to try to find traces that for you may have indicated that they were from most likely, if not definitively, right, um, from mm. hands or goose process.
1: Mm, yeah um, and it came from kind of knocking on doors of collectors and museums in china uh asking to see certain instruments over and over again and asking to see other instruments not by her but by her male colleagues whom she know whom she um knew and also had uh extensive connection and contact with. And after the umpteenth visit, uh <laughs> when I when I look at the pictures that I took, when I look at the notes that I made, when I look at the drawings that I made, I started to see patterns. I started to see, you know, what you said, tropes, visual tropes. Whether these are real inkstones, authentic inkstones by Gu or not well um but They tend to focus on certain kinds of motifs, such as a round face moon surrounded by clouds, such as a dramatic phoenix that is three dimensional with its plumage kind of draped like a theater curtain on the sides of the stone. And there are lots and lots and lots of it. It's almost like a a factory. Uh, Her male colleagues made similar ones. So I realized that there are six or seven of these visual tropes that we can clearly identify. to her, with her and her male colleagues from that one very specific period of no more than 40 years.
0: Great. And chapter four, um, you mentioned the three-dimensionality of some of this, and chapter four mm-hmm. um, really pays special attention to the significance of three-dimensionality. And it you can make this argument that three-dimensionality goes from Kind of the pursuit of three dimensionality on the surface of one of these stones to a conception mm-hmm. of the inkstone itself as a three dimensional object. And this is, this is a significant change. And there's a really beautiful um, discussion of this in chapter four. Now you, I mm. want to ask you very briefly about something you just mentioned, because um, for anyone listening who has an interest in um, also science studies, the significance mm. of drawing as a form of knowing has received increasing attention lately. And you mentioned mm. not just photographs and your own experience and your notes of these objects, but also your drawings. And I mm. would actually just incidentally love to hear a little bit more about that. So in in your own process, mm. at what points did you felt did you feel it was significant to draw? And what kinds of things did you draw as part of your own research process?
1: Mm, It's interesting. At first, I resorted to drawing because some museums wouldn't let me take pictures. Mm -hmm. Um, But as I started to draw... I realized that um, I, I noticed details that I wouldn't have if I were just to look at a photograph. Um, part, of, uh, part of the innovative aspect of uh, Gu and her male colleagues in her period with the drive towards three-dimensionality on the surface of the Einstung is that they started to carve deeper and deeper recesses into the the surface of the stone. So, in order to draw, I actually stuck my pinky finger into. <laughs> These Uh thank goodness, is stone, right? So they 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 wouldn't corrode. So they let me do whatever I wanted. This is what I couldn't do with embroidery, uh, and and so in order to draw them in profile, I wanted to know how deep it is, and it's not until then that I realized um, this is a new. Technique of carving because high relief had never been used in carving in stone before. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. Sorry, did you want to go on or no? Uh, so, uh, drawing another moment of truth uh, as I was drawing is that um, I'm not. I'm not a good drawer but I <laughs> I learned in high school I, I I love to to draw with pencils and so on and I was trying to figure out right a stone is it's a you know is a three-dimensional surface how to translate some of the three-dimensionality onto a two-dimensional piece of paper without shading. I don't really want to shade. Um, and then I, I realized that I could follow maybe the stroke of the knife, the tip of the knife, even imagining the carver's hand guiding the carving knife, uh, making a certain mark. And it was then that I realized that the treatment of the wings of one of the birds mm-hmm. felt so much like embroidery stitches for me because i I did my previous research project on suzhou embroidery, as I was saying, so it's the 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 drawing process that made me um realize that maybe there's a certain affinity between drawing and jabbing very lightly with the tip of the carving knife.
0: I love that. Thank you so much for sharing yeah. that. I think that's a super, super fascinating and important part of this. Now, as we um, move, just to kind of say a little bit more about what's in Chapter 3 as we're moving forward, you show here that Gu had an unusual career that actually became central, not just to the emergence of a view of inkstone carving as an artistic practice, but also to the modern inkstone as a collectible item. And while mm. Chapter 3 takes us through um, kind of an understanding of Of Gu as a craftsman, as an artisan, right? And it takes us through the stages Mm -hmm. through which she practiced her craft, from commissioning the inkstone to carving, including paying significant attention to what she did not carve, right? And showing that Mm -hmm. some carvers carved words and other carvers didn't, and that becomes important. And also, Mm -hmm. um, you kind of show us the significance of her signature marks. But Gu was mm. not just a craftsman or an artisan. She was also a super brand. And the next mm. chapter um, kind of explains that and shows why that's important. So chapter mm. four tracks Gu's development from a local artisan into a super brand. So, Dorothy, mm. what is a super brand? Um, what do you mean by <laughs> this? And, and, and why, is this for, why is this significant for understanding the larger story that this part of the book is telling?
1: <laughs> a super brand is a huge, a super huge brand, um, but it's also a brand that no longer bears any direct connection with the founder, with the original Gu. Uh, as her visual tropes kind of started to bounce back and forth um, between Suzhou, her native place, and other parts of the empire as other... uh, make her clearly uh, imitated her hand, her tropes. I won't call them forgers. I would call them, you know, admirers. So uh, in some ways, just like Louis Vuitton, the founder no longer had control over what comes out from, you know, the factory or from the brand. But, uh to me as a historian, the the fact that Gu turned from an individual, highly famous and successful Inkstone uh, artisan into a super brand is historically the most interesting part of her story because it shows us all of the processes that was needed in order to be successful in the overheated marketplace of 1880. Of 18th century China
0: Another aspect of what's going on here that's important is the gendering of what's happening here. So on Mm -hmm. 141, I'm just going to read a short passage from Mm -hmm. this page for listeners and then ask you to talk a little bit about it. Here's what it says. Mm -hmm. It's hard to escape the impression that the male inkstone makers presented themselves as individual artisans, artists even, whereas the Mm -hmm. stones bearing the mark of Guernyang announced their nature as being manufactured in a workshop in the very composition of the sign that's supposed to be the hallmark of her singularity and irreducible Mm. presence. So, Dorothy, why is this, or how is this important in terms of how we understand perhaps the larger gender dynamics at work here?
1: Mm, It's really interesting that, um, Gu, we we can find Gu's signature mark on a large number of stones but the curious fact is that none of the fi- signature marks look alike. They come in different sizes, different scripts, different formats, different shapes. So um, unlike her male colleagues, when they did manage to leave signature marks on their works, it was pretty uniform. You could trace uh, um, that roughly they're from the same hand. And one of the um, interpretations that one may make from this is simply that for the male uh, inkstone makers, it was just easier, it was more believable for them to um present themselves as male scholars, as male painters who were more educated and more culturally respected. But for Gu Erniang, who was although more famous than her male colleagues, because there was perhaps no uh, precedent of a female inkstone stone maker, um, there were very few uh, female painters who made it... Uh, into the exalted hallways of uh, famous artists. There were a handful, but not as many as men. So we see the gender uh, inequality there in terms of people's expectations. Um, Even though if Gu had wanted to leave her signature mark in a uniform way, perhaps it wouldn't have stuck. Great.
0: Um, now, as we kind of move, uh, thank you very much for that. And we're going to come back very briefly, I think, at the end um, to look again at this issue of gender. But first, we mm-hmm. have to look at the Fujo circle of inkstone aficionados that you take us into. So Chapter mm-hmm. 5 takes us into Fujian. And you talk not just about these inkstone aficionados, but you also introduce for us here, or talk at, at length here, about a text that seemed really significant for the project. Mm. And this is a text called the Inkstone Chronicle. This was an account Mm. of Gu's patrons narrating their lives, as you put it here, by way of the inkstone encomiums that they composed. So, Dorothy, can you tell us a little bit about the nature and significance of this text? Why is this um, such an important part of the work that this part of the book is doing?
1: Mm, um, Inkstone Chronicle saved my life because... (laughs) If it hadn't existed, I wouldn't have been able to write this book. Is it's also a really interesting text, and there are two uh, manuscript versions of it. One is, or, or you know, it's um, basically a new genre of books that only came into being um, in the lifetime of these patrons. What they did was that they would commission Gu to make an inkstone, and then they would take it home and host drinking parties to admire the, it, and there they would compose encomiums to be carved later on on the back in order to commemorate. The making of the stone and the gathering, you know, um, that the uh, um, in which they they you know mm-hmm. gathered. So um, we see, and, and unfortunately, most of the stones ended up being lost or sold or stolen or something. So many of these encomiums that were composed were never actually carved onto the stones. Uh, they exist only as pieces of paper. So one of the, the son of one of these uh, male patrons, um, collectors, decided to compile uh, all of these encomiums and uh, make so that the world could know about it. And part of what I learned is the high, intensely emotional a uh, relationship that this man formed with the instruments.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, in addition to talking about um, the relationship of the inkstones uh, that you've just described, you also talk in this chapter about collecting and collections, and you bring us into the genesis of some of these collections, including mm. um, discussing inkstone collecting as a masculine obsession, um, including mm. discussing building a collection and passing it down in a family, specialized knowledge of inkstones, a kind of connoisseur's eye, and its usefulness in the market, and you. Talk Talk about the gifting of inkstones as well. Now, at the Mm. end of this chapter, you suggest that a way to understand what's going on here um, uh, may not be most productively put as collection, but Mm. you suggest that rather than understanding collection in those terms, we understand it in terms of assemblage. So Mm. what what kind of work does assemblage do for you here?
1: Um, I think that when we... Say collection, at least when I think of collection, I tend to think of individual ownership. I save up enough money, I uh, develop my connoisseur's eye, I go to an auction house, I go to a flea market, and boom, I netted my trophy, I take it home, lined it up on the shelf, and it's mine, I, I got such a big cake out of it, and then I become famous, I published a catalogue, and then I donated it in my own name, to a museum after I'm gone. But I think that um, what's so striking about these male collectors is that their sense of ownership its is collected is relational and one might even speak of it as a form of custodianship they they almost see their their individual ownership to a kind of a collective ownership today i i house it in my humble study um tomorrow i might give it to my son or to my best friend or some powerful official would snatch it away from me, and um, it would enter into a different loop. It would um, start a new life without me, but that's okay. The object lives on. So I thought the assemblage um, is not a very satisfying word, but I, at least I hope the assemblage will get at this sense of fluidity, this sense of custodianship, and almost like a shared economy of objects,
0: Great. Thank you so much. Now, as we move from here to the epilogue, um, we move to a, a section of the book where there's a lot of fascinating stuff going on. So we'll only be able to scratch the surface here. Um, but but I'll just mention for listeners that in the epilogue, um, you make the point that it's really important to understand writing as an embodied material craft. Um, Mm -hmm. So that itself is a contribution. But you go on from there to talk about different or contrasting approaches of different um, individuals in the story and groups in the story and conclude something important from that. So you contrast the approaches of the Fuzhou group that we've just been talking about and a particular Shandong scholar, painter, inkstone maker named Gao Feng mm. Han. Now, mm. the details of Gao's life are you know we the listener can find those in the book, but importantly, you describe GAO as an artisan scholar in contrast to a scholar artisan, and the notion mm. of scholar artisan is really important here um, in that you you this is a new label that you're proposing um, that we think about in broader historiographical terms. So can you talk a little bit about this, Dorothy, the difference between mm. an artisan scholar and a scholar artisan, and what's important about marking this difference?
1: Um yeah, it's it's a it's a mouthful, so I hope that um I can explain it clearly. I think that um um the eighteenth century was a very fluid time when people were no longer sure who is an artisan and who is a scholar. Um, For example, if we go back to the 14th or 15th century, pretty much everybody knew who was a scholar. He was the one who was the son of a scholar and the family owned landed uh, estates, landed wealth. Um, And he is now studying for the exam and chances are he would pass it or even And if he didn't pass, he would be known as a scholar's son. But uh, as China um, became commercialized, uh, especially after 1600, when it became the largest uh, creditor nation in the world, as we can say in today's terms, then uh, the there's a lot more money going on in society. And uh, who was a scholar was no longer uh, a sure bet. Um, more importantly, uh, even if your father was a scholar, chances are you won't be able to pass the exam. And chances are you have lost your landed estate. So you might own a few lots of land, but most Uh, likely you will have some kind of investment, some kind of commercial wealth. In that kind of fluid situation, society, I think that um, social status, who is a scholar, it's a matter of social performance. You say you are a scholar, but you don't have a degree, you don't have a a bureaucratic appointment, but you write poetry. But uh, do you get invited? To the uh, scholars' poetry drinking party by the most famous scholar of the day. No, so uh, maybe you are just a, a an artisan scholar, not a scholar artisan. So what I what I think is really important to realize is that um, the status the symbols were no longer stable. And um, being a scholar to a certain extent is a matter of self-claim, and then that self-claim would then be subject to social judgment.
0: Great. Thank you so much. Now, I think since the book ends with a particular kind of reflection, I think I'll also ask you um, to end for us with a particular reflection before we move to our conclusion. And that's a reflection on the relationship between gender and the craft of one. Um, So, Dorothy, Mm -hmm. you end the book reflecting on this. Could you say a little bit about um, perhaps what you think is significant about this relationship between gender and the craft of one for listeners um, as we move to our wrap up?
1: Um, I think that the the most important lesson I learned uh, about gender disparity uh, as I look at Gu's life is that um, gender did not stop her from learning a masculine skill, and gender did not stop her from being basically a master craftsman, and gender did not stop her from... Uh, not being with male clients face to face but uh, uh uh the gender uh, discrimination happened in her life or make itself felt in her life in far more subtle ways
0: mm-hmm. yeah well, thank you so much, Dorothy. There's a million billion things that we can talk about, right, that we yeah. haven't had a chance to get to. And it's it's really an extraordinarily rich book in all kinds of ways. But um, in the meantime, as uh, we move to our conclusion, do you have anything that you'd like to add that we didn't get a, get a chance to talk to or to talk about rather for listeners um, and perhaps especially for listeners who have not yet become readers?
1: Um. The the one thing that I really learned um, in writing this book is the importance of craft, is the importance of handwork. Um, I think of my my overall uh, um, vision in life as one that would reverse the industrial revolution. I think that uh, I, a, a craftsman's life, it's uh small but highly skilled, uh it's sustainable and it's satisfactory. It, it it has a I think that it brings more happiness to oneself and the world. And as, uh, as we encountered all of these environmental problems, as we kind of faced the Anthropocene, I really want to kind of embrace the craftsman's way of life. Uh, if you have to make things in order to survive, there also is minimum waste. Mm-hmm. So,
0: yeah, I think that's a um, I would love to at some point talk more about that as well, insofar as it might shape how we think about um, our jobs and our work as academics moving forward, right? And the institution yeah. and academia and how, how much institutional pressures right now do or don't facilitate that kind of movement. I think it's a really, really important point, and thank you for that. Um, and so now... That the book is out. And again, I'll just mention not only is it a fascinating book, but it's also a beautiful book. What is currently inspiring you, Dorothy? What are you thinking about working on now?
1: I am definitely not thinking of writing another book. I, I want to, I want to do creative writing, perhaps in Chinese. Um, I, I want to think about writing as my own embodied craft. I want to try new formats, new genres and new ways of bringing drawings and, and images into our academic intellectual life. Yeah.
0: Amazing. Well, this has been so inspiring for me, Dorothy. I'm so grateful um, to you for spending the time and for creating this object for us. Best of luck with that work. And thank you. It's really, really been a pleasure.
1: No, thank you very much, Collar.
0: You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very, very much for joining us and catch us again next time.